Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Aquarium of the Pacific. I'm Jerry Schubel, president, and it's great to see all of you here this evening. We normally stream these lectures live also, and we're having some technology problems, but we're hoping to get that corrected. For those of you who are in the theater, we request that you silence your cell, phone, cell phones and refrain from texting for the next hour or so. I want to thank our sponsors, Gazette Newspapers and the Coriat the Courtyard Marriott downtown. Without their support, we wouldn't be able, be able to have this wonderful lecture series. I want to welcome Greg Rao, who's going to discuss new management strategies for an ocean that has been impacted by climate change. Dr. Rao worked for 26 years at the Institute for Marine Sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Most recently, he has held the position of senior research scientist there, and he also has a position at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He was a staff scientist for the International Atomic Energy Agency at the Museum of Oceanography in Monaco, and he was a National Research Council associate at NASA's Ames Research Center. He's the author of more than 400 publications in professional journals, including Science and Nature. He earned a bachelor's degree at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington, and a master's and PhD from the University of Washington in Seattle. In 2013, he was a winner in the geoengineering section and a co-winner in the electricity section of the MIT Climate CoLab contest. He was a finalist for the Paul Allen Ocean Challenge in 2013. And I, everyone I know knows that Paul Allen just died a couple of days ago. And he was a, uh, a finalist for the Keeling Curve Prize in 2018. Distinguished scholar, and he has a lot to say about how we're going to have to change the ways that we manage the ocean and the planet. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Greg Rao. Okay, good evening. Uh, thank you, Jerry, for the nice introduction and the invitation to uh, be here tonight. I'd also like to thank Linda Brown for coordinating our uh, travel arrangements and, and uh, logistics. Uh, and I'd like to welcome all of you. Thanks for being here. This is a bit of a homecoming for me. Uh, many years ago, I lived in Santa Monica, just up the coast here, and worked at UCLA during, doing a postdoc there, so it's nice to be back here in Southern California. Um, I'd like to talk today or tonight about um, climate change, CO2, and how that's affecting the ocean and what we can, might be able to do about it. So the title here is Sea Change Needed in uh, Ocean Management. I'd like to thank uh, Mark Eakin of uh, NOAA for providing some of the slides I'll be uh, presenting tonight. And let's see how this goes. Okay, well, just for starters, uh, we've all read the headlines here. Uh, the ocean is under a lot of uh, stress, as we've read. Uh, and coming from a variety of, of quarters, uh, overfishing, pollution, et cetera. And uh, we can, for example, overfishing. Um, we have a growing population. 
a number of countries obtain like 40% of their protein from the sea, and those populations are growing. There's an increasing demand for, for uh, fish, shellfish, et cetera. And that's putting uh, significant pressure on the natural populations that are out there. Uh, pollution, all kinds of pollution, chemical pollution. We now find uh, man-made chemicals throughout the ocean, throughout the food web. We're not sure what the consequences of that's going to be, but it's, uh, it's not a good thing. We need to be more careful about uh, what we put in the ocean and uh, more respectful of the uh, marine environment in that regard. Uh, noise, there's uh, noise pollution that can have significant impacts on certain organisms. You've seen the stranding of whales and, and mammals uh, on the beach as a consequence of, of um, uh, using acoustics for uh, looking for oil and gas, also military activities, but there are also other organisms that can be impacted by, by this noise pollution. Okay, uh, land runoff. We've heard about dead zones that are off, uh, usually at the mouths of rivers. This is a consequence of uh, land disturbance, agriculture upstream that brings in nutrients, increases productivity, that organic matter sinks and consumes the oxygen in the water column, and therefore uh, it's very difficult for oxygen-breathing organisms to survive there. This is a, a, a concern, it's a concern around the world. And uh, also plastic, you've heard the stories on plastic. We're putting in something like 10 million tons of plastic into the ocean. It degrades very slowly. Floating rafts of this are out in the ocean. It's breaking down, getting into the food webs. We have yet to know what the ultimate consequences are, but obviously those uh, are, are probably not gonna be good for, for the ocean. So we need to do a better job in, in addressing uh, these pollution issues. And what I'm going to talk about tonight is perhaps the, uh, the grandest pollution problem uh, yet for the ocean, and that has to do with atmospheric CO2. You've seen the Keeling curve. Whoops, sorry. Let's see if I can use the, no. Let's see if I can use the, whoops. No, there we go. Let's see if I can get the laser going here. There we go. Yeah, Keeling curve here. This is a, we have time here starting in the late 50s, going all the way out to, I think it's September of this year. Carbon dioxide concentration at a uh, Mauna Loa in Hawaii, very pristine, capturing very pristine air. We see this progressive increase in atmospheric CO2. One of the most important earth science measurements of uh, last century and probably this century also, and certainly marking the the increase here uh, that's uh, dramatically increased over what it was. And we can take a closer look at how really how dramatic this is. This right line right here is what I just showed you. And this is a record going back 800,000 years. So clearly the, the, the rate at which this is increasing and the absolute amount that it has increased sort of dwarfs anything that's gone before. And you'd have to go back millions and millions of years to get anything like this kind of uh, uh, level of atmospheric CO2. So from a historic standpoint, this is a really unique uh, blip here. 
And of course, the, the primary cause of this increase in atmospheric CO2 is our use of fossil fuels, but it's not the only cause. Also, land use, as we clear land, degrade the organic matter that's there, it returns CO2 to the atmosphere that otherwise would be stored in biomass. That is also contributing to the uh, elevation in atmospheric CO2. But the primary uh, cause here is fossil fuel use and industrial processes. Let's see if we can, there we go. So, um, you know, this has gone on with a lot of knowledge about what the potential effects are going to be. We can go back to the eight, 1820 here, where a French scientist realized that the Earth should be a lot colder than it normally is, than it is, and uh, he concluded that there are gases in the atmosphere that cause the Earth to be warmer than it otherwise would be. It retains the heat that otherwise would reflect back out into space. A little later on, they discovered that this uh, important gas is war, water and CO2. A little more research, 100 years later, uh, it's really CO2 that is really the, the most concerning one of this because uh, man has most influence on it. Uh, others uh, calculated that we may get a four-degree increase in our CO2 per doubling of CO2. And um, further refinements and modeling of this has, has proceeded. Eventually, we've got here to some action. Uh, the Rio Agreement back in 92 realized that uh, we need to keep uh, uh, greenhouse gases at below dangerous levels. And uh, the, we had the Kyoto Protocol the recent Paris uh, Agreement, et cetera. But as you can see, beside this, uh, as you can see, um, despite all this knowledge and attempts at action, the atmospheric CO2, the emissions here of CO2 has continued to increase, as has the atmospheric CO2 concentration. And this is just a little clipping here showing that uh, the I don't know whether you can read that or not, but this is uh, 1912, and it's saying coal consumption affecting climate. This is like over a century of knowledge here, and we have yet to really effectively come to grips with this problem. And it is warming our planet. This is a, rec a record of mean atmospheric uh, or surface temperature. We've gone up uh, approximately at one degree C since pre-industrial time. There are obviously some blips here. CO2 isn't the only cause of uh, a mean temperature here, but uh, it is a primary one. And now the signal of our atmospheric CO2 is really coming to the fore, and will continue to do so as we as we emit CO2. And this is a, a simply a, a graph of our, our best estimate of how sensitive. Uh, mean surface temperature is going to be as a function of cumulative anthropogenic CO2 emissions. So this is just summing up all that's gone, you know, starting back in the, the pre-industrial age, back in the 1750s. We're up into this area right now, and if we continue on, we will continue to get this warming. Obviously, there's uncertainty here. But the bottom line is certainly as we, if we continue business as usual here, which is this red line up until the end of the century, we will be above 4 degrees C of warming, which is very concerning. Uh, another feature that's very important for the ocean is that most of this heat, most of the heat that's been trapped by greenhouse gases has gone into the ocean. 
uh, more than 90% of it has gone into the ocean. And this is a graph. This represents the surface ocean. This is the deeper ocean. And these layers down here are like the atmosphere and land, et cetera. So you can see the vast majority of the warming that we're doing to the planet is going into the ocean. And that's also very concerning uh, given the temperature sensitivities of some of the processes there. And as an example, this is a satellite image that identifies uh, critical temperature, whoops, sorry, temperature thresholds. Let's go back here. There we go. Yeah. Uh, this, these are colors denoting increasing thermal stress, and this relates to corals. And at level two, we were getting widespread coral bleaching and mortality expected. And as you can see in this time frame, like 14 to 17 or so, good chunk of the ocean here is way over critical thresholds here for, for marine corals. And uh, you know, certainly mortality did happen. There was a big, more, several mortality events here in the Great Barrier Reef. We're concerned about corals because even though they occupy a very small part of the, the ocean, about 25% of the marine diversity resides there. All sorts of fish and invertebrates and plants, et cetera. So if we lose corals, we're going to be losing a good deal of the biodiversity of the ocean, and uh, that's very concerning. And uh, OK, here's another example. This is sort of a before and after picture here of a thermal bleaching event. Now, this is in Jarvis Island. This is out in the middle of nowhere, middle of the Pacific. Uh, there's, it's un uninhabited. It's managed uh, by the US Department of Interior pristine uh, coral reef, but despite uh, being otherwise untouched by man, it was uh, largely devastated due to the thermal event that it experienced uh, back in 2015. So uh, obviously this is a very concerning for, for ocean ecology. Another thing that warming does is reduce uh, sea ice cover, and this is a graph of the extent of summer sea ice in the Arctic. And as you can see, going from 1979, I can't read the end here, but it's fairly recent. You can see there's a, there's a general trend here declining. The sea ice is, is declining in the summer. And this is concerning because it's opening up this ocean uh, really for further warming. If you have it covered with ice, it's a reflective surface. If it's open, you have a dark ocean exposed. And that's going to absorb more, more heat and will warm more quickly. And uh, this has biological uh, impacts. Uh, for example, marine mammals, many marine mammals rely on sea ice cover for their, their existence and uh, for their migration and living. And uh, here's some examples of where marine mammals are being forced uh, to uh, into other behaviors that, uh, where, where ice is absent. Uh, the other thing that we need to be concerned about as the ocean warms is that it expands and therefore sea level rises. Here's a, a record of sea level rise going from the 1990s forward here. Uh, the, the sea level is rising for two reasons. One, as I said, thermal expansion as, as waters warm, they expand, but also we're melting glaciers. 
uh, water that's otherwise stored on land as ice is melting and running into the ocean, and that will also obviously increase uh, sea level. So uh, very concerning here, and uh, we don't have to look far to see what the impacts of those are. Obviously, we've just experienced a storm in Florida where they had significant uh, flooding and, um, and um, storm surge. Here's some other examples. Uh, a lot of our infrastructure is located on the coast. And there's trillions of dollars of infrastructure, and those are all under threat as sea level rises. And that's not to say also that there are biological consequences of this. There are animals that rely on sea level being at a certain level. If we start raising that, they're going to have to migrate up or otherwise adapt to the, to the situation. So there's a lot of uh, marine biology concern surrounding this. And if, if, as if that weren't enough, another concern about CO2 in the atmosphere is that you're adding also CO2 to the ocean. That is, as you add CO2 to the atmosphere, that the pressure of that CO2 is such that it drives the, uh, the, some of the CO2 into the ocean. But when that happens, it doesn't stay as molecular CO2. It combines with water to form an acid. It forms carbonic acid. So as a consequence of our putting CO2 into the atmosphere, we are also putting CO2 into the ocean, and we therefore acidifying the ocean as a consequence of that. And this is just a graph showing that as we increase the dissolved CO2 in the oceans, we're going to drive down the pH. Now, pH is the opposite of, I mean, it's, as pH goes down, acidity goes up. But it's a pretty well-established relationship here that as CO2 goes up in the air, it's going to go up in the ocean, and we're going to uh, increase the acidity, in the, at least in the surface ocean. And that's exactly what's been observed here. Here's the Keeling curve that I, that I just showed you. And these are direct measurements of CO2 in surface waters off of Hawaii at the um, Hawaii uh, um, Ocean Time Series, the HOTS uh, station. And it's the CO2 in the water, and this is the acidity in the water that's being directly measured. And as you can see, we're, we've lost, uh, you know, we're approaching almost a, a tenth of a, a unit of pH. Now, to put that in perspective, um, if your blood were to change by a tenth of a, a pH unit, you'd be dead. Uh, a lot of biology is very sensitive to pH, and it doesn't take much to, to really alter things. Um, so this is, uh, again, very concerning about the biological impacts that are going to occur uh, because of this. Uh, and a number of studies have shown that you're actually going to get uh, corrosion, uh, loss of shell material for those organisms that form shell, and it will also make it very difficult for them to, to make shell. So this is having a, an impact on, on shell-forming organisms. Now, I've got a caveat by saying that, by saying that not all, all organisms are sensitive to this, just some of them are. They've done a lot of experiments. Some are, uh, seem to thrive just fine, and others are sensitive to it. But the bottom line is that we are going to change the species composition of the ocean if acidity uh, uh, in, continues to increase. And this is just a sort of a longer-term look at what I've more or less just talked about. 
you've got uh, global average surface temperature change. And these are under two scenarios. One where we're very, we rapidly reduce our emissions to zero uh, by the end of the century. We keep warming below two degrees C. And the red is more or less business as usual. And in this case, we're looking at average surface temperatures here. We're going up, whereas here, maybe we have a chance to stabilize or go down. Uh, we're looking at, I think this is pH. I can't read that too well. Hemisphere, sea level, sorry, sorry, sea level, yeah. Sea level in high emissions versus uh, uh, reduced emissions scenario. I Means sea level rise here. Uh, going up, uh, and this is pH. Again, if we are able to reduce our emissions, it will stabilize at somewhat lower values, but otherwise it's going to go down. A couple of these are worth noting that even though we, if we were to go to the low emissions scenario, mean sea level rise is going to continue to rise uh, because there's a lot of thermal inertia here that ice doesn't instantly melt. It takes a long time to, to initiate melting of ice, but once it gets going, it's hard to stop. So even though we were to have our emissions go to zero here, we would still have probably another century or two of uh, sea level rise to deal with. The other thing I, I, uh, I should point out is oxygen. As oceans warm, the solubility of oxygen goes down. So therefore, the oxygen concentration in the ocean goes down. That's obviously concerning for bio any biology that breathes air or breathes uh, oxygen. Uh, another concern here is the longevity of CO2 in the atmosphere once it's placed there. Now, these are two different trajectories. One, a relatively small instantaneous injection. I think it's 100 uh, picograms of uh, 100 gigatons of CO2 versus like 5,000 gigatons. This would represent more or less what would happen if we were to burn all the fossil fuels. Uh, so it would be this upper scenario. But in either case, I guess I also need to say that uh, we've emitted right now about um, five or 600 uh, gigatons. So, so the current trajectory would be right along in here. Bottom line is that once you emit CO2, it's, a lot of it stays in the atmosphere for hundreds, thousands of years. So this is not something that's going to go away once we stop emissions. It's going to linger in the air. It's going to continue to warm and acidify the planet. So that's, that's a concern. OK, so uh, based on all this, what, what should we be doing here? Well, it's pretty obvious that we need to reduce our emissions of atmospheric CO2. And we need to also see if we can increase the removal of uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. As I said, it's a very long-lived uh, uh, gas. And if we really want to rapidly reduce the impacts of, uh, of temperature and acidity, we need to think about ways that we might be able to really proactively remove the legacy CO2 that's already there. And we also need to explore new ocean management uh, practices that could help address this as well as to help uh, prevent or reduce the impacts of climate change that, that is occurring and will continue to occur in the ocean. 
So this is really, as I say, an all hands on deck moment here for the oceanographic community. We need, this should be front and center of any sort of thought about ocean conservation and ocean management. So with that in mind, I was, I was curious what uh, uh, various conservation <laughs> organizations um, what their philosophy was here. Uh, clearly, they, uh, they recognize that climate change is here and is impacting the ocean, but what, what's, what are they recommending here? Well, climate change in the ocean can be uh, addressed with the same effective tools as many other threats um, uh, in, in marine life. Well, I, I beg to differ there. We have a lot of tools for managing, uh, managing the ocean to address overfishing, pollution, um, erosion, things of this nature. But the warming and acidification of the ocean is something totally different. And I, I would argue that our current management uh, practices are, are not ready to, are not up to addressing those, those impacts and should be concerning here. Uh, the establishment of global networks of no-take marine reserves uh, is an important step. Uh, ecosystems that are healthy and robust, um, et cetera, et cetera. You can read that. But anyway, the idea is that if we have a pristine ecosystem, everything's going to be fine. Well, we just saw coral reefs, uh, pristine coral reefs that are now dead be, uh, you know, with that philosophy. So clearly, uh, you know, playing the same management game that we've been playing all along is, is inadequate for addressing the, the problems that we're up against now. Uh, by improving the quality and quantity of marine protected areas, uh, we will conserve marine biodiversity in a rapidly changing in, in climate. Well, I don't get that. Uh, if, if the ocean is warming and acidifying above certain critical thresholds, um, uh, we need some new management tools to address that. And then there's a discussion here about how we need to um, you know, better understand the ocean and, and have more predictive capability. Well, I would argue that we have some pretty good prediction right now if we continue on this CO2 track. It's pretty clear that the ocean is in trouble now and will be in worse shape as we continue. So I'd say let's uh, try to divert some of this attention into try to thinking about what action we could possibly take here to, to avert some of these, some of these problems. Uh, and this is just uh, pointing out that here we have a listing of uh, heritage sites, uh, coral reefs and heritage sites, which are the, the best managed in the world. And you can see that a majority of them over here on the right, and I can't read the dates, but I think it was recently, each of those experienced uh, very uh, critical warming, and many of them were damaged because of it. So here we have pristine environments that are already managed as marine protected areas that are, are being devastated uh, as a consequence this, of, the, of the thermal inc increase. So we need to think about you know, what we can do to help, help avert this. And so again, I just say, you know, here's what we need to do. And so how, how could we do it? And how, how could the marine environment help us uh, address some of these issues? Well, first off, if we want to address uh, this uh, CO2 emissions problem, clearly we need to other source, we need other sources of energy other than fossil fuels. 
that, are not, that don't emit CO2 or are very low emitting uh, CO2 sources. And the ocean is very rich in renewable energy. It's got many times more uh, energy potential than what we cons the whole globe consumes in, in a year. And there's a whole variety of it. We've got wind, waves, solar, thermal, et cetera, just out there. And uh, there are technologies that can tap into that. So here is a way that the ocean could uh, provide us with a way of reducing emissions by harnessing the huge amounts of energy that are out there in the ocean. Uh, another concern, well, I guess I've already mentioned it, but as we continue emitting up here and going out in time and our, uh, our emissions continue to increase, as we do that, it becomes less and less likely that we're going to stay below a certain thermal threshold. This happens to be 2 degrees centigrade. It's very difficult, if not impossible, as we put off turning this curve down to, to reach this level of warming and hold it there by just emissions reduction alone. And for example, this red line shows that we actually need to have negative emissions here to reach this two degree target. And by negative emissions, I mean we have to proactively remove CO2 from the atmosphere. It's a lot easier to avoid emissions, but we've reached a point now where it is unlikely that that's going to keep us below this critical threshold. And so now we have to think about ways, if there are any ways that we can use to proactively remove the legacy CO2 that's otherwise just going to stay there for a long time. Now, there's some good news in this in that nature naturally does remove some of our CO2. Actually, about 50% of the emissions that we put into the atmosphere is taken up by the ocean and land processes. And you can see that if you blow up the, the Keeling curve, and this is just looking at, I think, two years' worth of data, on an annual cycle, yes, the CO2 goes up, but it also goes down by more than five parts per million here. This is CO2 drawdown. This is a, a carbon dioxide removal that naturally occurs. And if that hadn't occurred, obviously, we'd be in a much worse uh, shape. So this is encouraging that carbon dioxide removal is already part of what Mother Nature does. And so that gives us thoughts here, maybe we can enhance that or, or add to that to help us remove legacy CO2 more, more rapidly. And this is just a historical pers perspective on how much has been taken up by the ocean and the land. As you can see, a majority of it's gone into the ocean. Now, that's a good thing because it hasn't stayed in the atmosphere and warmed the planet. But the bad thing is that most of this is, is in the form of carbonic acid. It has acidified the ocean as, it, as, it, as it, it's done that. So that's not a good thing. Uh, less CO2 has gone into the, in net, has gone into the terrestrial environment, but it does contribute. And there's certainly a number of ways that we can increase that uptake by carefully managing the, um, the land. And, and there are other technologies that could assist in, in increasing this uptake. Uh, again, this just shows the relative proportion of land versus ocean uptake for a given input of CO2 over the span of, I think it's a thousand or how many thousand years here. But again, uh, the atmospheric CO2 slowly goes down because of these uptake processes. And again, the ocean is already taking up the majority of the, of the, um, 
or will take up the majority of the CO2. So are there ways that we can enhance this, but also do it in a way that doesn't acidify the ocean? That's the question. So one possibility is why not just extract CO2 from the ocean? If it's in there, we can, there are physical and chemical ways we can pull it out of the ocean. It's very energy intensive to do that. It's probably not going to be a solution on a, a very large scale. But there could be local areas where we could manage the chemistry uh, in very localized areas by extracting the CO2 and storing that. Uh, in some way. So there, there's just some ideas here that people have uh, talked about. Another, another angle is to, to harness biology in consuming CO2. Uh, marine plants, microorganisms, anything that photosynthesizes consumes CO2. So that's a good thing. Unfortunately, uh, most biology is designed to rapidly recycle that carbon back to CO2. But we could intervene in ways that could maybe store the carbon longer, or we could harvest it and put it in more storable forms on land, et cetera. So there have been uh, lots of talk about uh, and thoughts and actually experiments where uh, uh, marine plants are grown uh, intensively and for the purpose of storing carbon or providing other source, uh, you know, for example, fuel or other uses here. Now, we use this as fuel uh, that re simply returns uh, CO2 to the atmosphere. So that's not really a carbon dioxide removal uh, strategy. But if we uh, either keep it in as biomass or convert that to some longer-lived form of carbon, we, we could actually uh, affect uh, carbon dioxide removal. Uh, another uh, way to consume CO2 is abiotically. And this involves geochemistry. Now, we're lucky that most of the Earth is composed of what, what is called alkaline rocks. They are really a chemical base, and they react with CO2 to form other stable compounds, and therefore, over long periods of time, uh, actually consume CO2 out of the atmosphere and form what are called carbonates and bicarbonates. Uh, so that's, uh, that's good. It's, a, it's actually the, one of the major ways that Mother Nature naturally consumes CO2 over long time, time scales. But the problem is that it does take a long time for this to happen. So I and others, uh, many others actually, have, have been thinking about ways that we could accelerate this otherwise natural process to increase uh, CO2 removal from the atmosphere. And this is just some more details. Basically, the idea here is that if you have an acid like carbonic acid and you react that with a chemical base, you're going to get a neutral salt. In this case, it's a bicarbonate that you're forming. But uh, there are various sources of bases. One is natural that we just talked about. There are various uh, minerals that are naturally alkaline. But you can also synthesize bases and do the same thing. These are going to be more expensive and more energy intensive to make. But there are various schemes that are thinking about how we could uh, use this chemistry to accelerate the removal of atmospheric CO2 and therefore better, more, qu more quickly lower the atmospheric CO2 concentration. Interestingly enough, this re these reactions that I just talked about are already used by marine uh, aquariumists, saltwater aquariumists. Uh, there, they're interested in adding calcium bicarbonate or carbonate to their aquarium to help 
balance the chemistry, help neutralize the acidity, and add calcium for their calcifying organisms. But the angle here is, again, to add this chem these chemicals, not necessarily to consume CO2. In fact, they buy tank CO2 to do this, this reaction. Well, uh, we could potentially scale this up to a much larger scale and maybe have larger, maybe even global impacts here. Here would be our reactor, and rather than using tank CO2, we could use a CO2 from a power plant. And by doing this reaction, we could consume the CO2, we would react it with our calcium carbonate here, our limestone, and we would put the alkaline material into the ocean just like we would into an aquarium to help rebalance the chemistry there and help neutralize the acidity and the impacts of the acidity. Another idea, and this, uh, this gets a little complicated, but I and others have shown that you can take some pretty common materials here, base minerals, salt water, and we have lots of uh, renewable electricity out in the ocean. And doing an electrochemical process, we can make hydroxide that's very reactive and absorptive of CO2, so we can generate this calcium and magnesium bicarbonate, but also generate hydrogen, which can be used as a fuel in substitution for fossil energy. So if we drive this with non-fossil energy, we have a carbon-negative energy generation system that also generates a chemical that could potentially be beneficial to the ocean and that accounts, uh, counters ocean acidification. And this just, point, this just points out that hydrogen has a multiple uses here. We can use it directly as a fuel. Uh, California is now getting car, hydrogen cars from Japan. They're trying to uh, put a foot, get a foothold here in the state. The state is building out a hydrogen fueling infrastructure. So there's a, there's a potential here that uh, hydrogen will, use will grow in the future and can become a, a, a part, at least, of our transportation fuel. The other uh, role here is energy storage. This is very important for renewable energy because many of our renewable energy forms are periodic like solar, wind, et cetera, and you need to store energy while the sun shines so that you can um, have energy available when the sun isn't shining. And this is one way to do that. We can use that off-peak energy to generate hydrogen and then reconvert that to electricity using fuel cells in times when, when energy demand is high. So there's various ways this could fit into, to do multiple things, really, in terms of substituting for fossil fuels um, consuming CO2 and helping mitigate ocean acidification. Um, another set of um, possible actions here are to, is to cool coral reefs or cool ecosystems that otherwise are, are, would otherwise uh, be over their temperature threshold. And here's an experiment where bleached corals our, our cold water is brought in, and after a time, they actually recover because they are able to cool and to, to regain some of their activity that they had, um, had lost during, uh, during thermal bleaching. So we could, again, expand this to a larger scale. Could we have solar-powered pumps where we're bringing up cold water from the deep, spreading that over the coral reefs, and helping moderate the temperature there and thus save them from, from bleaching it during uh, 
critical times when, when it, the otherwise the temperature would be over critical thresholds. This actually is being seriously considered for the Great Barrier Reef. They're going to do some experiments in this regard. Uh, another way to cool the surface ocean would again be bringing up cold water to the surface, but we can actually harness that to also generate electricity. When you have a thermal gradient, there is technology available that allows us to drive a turbine that drives a generator and we can generate electricity. And therefore, again, this is, does multiple things. We're cooling the surface ocean, but we're also getting energy out of, out of doing that. And we've, we've proposed, well, heck, if you've got electricity, you can do our negative emissions hydrogen thing. So here we can do a whole bunch of things. We can uh, make uh, non-fossil fuel, consume CO2, reduce acidity, and cool the surface ocean all in one fell swoop. Well, okay, it's a little far out, but uh, there you go. Um, okay, uh, in terms another angle for addressing thermal impacts is to simply shade the reefs, put, put some netting or something that, that cuts down on the solar, direct solar uh, input to that reef. And so various experiments have been done doing this. Uh, obviously, um, not all the warming in a given area is due to the, the, the solar energy that arrives right there at, this, at that site, but it has it, it, other, normally it will warm the ocean elsewhere and the currents will bring that warming in. So it's unclear how effective this might be at the, at the small scale like this. But others, let's see if I can, others have uh, talked about uh, doing this at much larger scale using cloud generation or aerosols that would provide shade that would reflect uh, excess solar energy back out into the atmosphere and therefore uh, prevent uh, warming or reduce the warming that would be occurring above uh, or below um, these, uh, these clouds or aerosols that are put into air. So that's, this is another way that's being considered for cooling uh, certain areas of, of the ocean. And last but not least, uh, how about genetic modification of organisms? How about seeing if we can make them more resistant and more resilient to uh, temperature and acidity, et cetera? Uh, there are a number of groups now that are looking into ways that we might be able to do this to help them to a sort of assisted evolution here to help them overcome uh, these thresholds. And maybe some will be able to survive in certain areas or We'll see. But anyway, it is, it's being considered here as, as a way of addressing this problem. So recommendations, uh, you know, uh, more or less I've said this before, but uh, we need to acknowledge that uh, human-caused climate change uh, is significantly impacting the marine, marine ecosystems and, uh, you know, threatening ocean conservation. We need to have uh, advocate for the reduction of uh, our emissions of CO2 to the air. That needs to be part of any ocean management uh, strategy. And we need to seek and support new and unconventional ways that we might, be, might use to help mitigate these effects or otherwise help organisms survive given the threats that they're, they're now facing. And uh, I, I guess I, I wouldn't be complete unless we talked about what we can do individually to uh, lower our carbon footprint and therefore help the ocean. 
And a study in last year uh, identified a number of things we can do. You can live car-free, uh, uh, buy a more efficient car. I, I'm sorry, I can't read all this, but uh, the size of these circles identifies the relative importance or the amount of carbon that you can avoid emitting just by your own uh, personal activities. So what's the big circle here? And that is... Uh, uh, having one less child. Uh, that, uh, that's a biggie here. And I think it tells us that uh, we need to reproduce responsibly if we're going to save the ocean and save the planet. Um, I'm going to skip this. This is just some discussion about how, uh, well, maybe I'll talk about it. Whoops. Um, no. Going from here to here, our increasing impact of various uh, activities, some of which are, were in the last slide. And these, these researchers wanted to see how frequently these were, these were mentioned in literature. And as you can see, it's, it's kind of uh, scattered here. The ones that are, that are actually the most impactful don't always get the mention here in the educational and government literature. So we could do a better job in communicating to individuals, you know, how impactful their various activities are, and that I, this obviously needs to be improved. So I'll just wrap up here. Um, bottom line, uh, you know, we need to acknowledge that CO2 and other greenhouse gases is affecting the ocean and the planet, and uh, we need to strongly advocate for the reduction of our CO2 emissions if we care about the ocean and the planet. And uh, we need to realize that conventional marine management isn't very well designed to address these new unconventional threats. And therefore, we need to think about and see if we have any additional options that might be useful in helping us uh, address these problems. And obviously, lastly, each of us has a role to play here in reducing emissions and helping save the ocean. So thank you very much for your attention. So, Greg, it's very clear that we have to quickly eliminate green, further greenhouse gas emissions. We also have to actively begin to remove CO2 already in the atmosphere, store it away, and remove CO2 from the ocean if we don't want to completely change marine ecosystems. There are a variety of tools. There's probably no single strategy. But what what... What are the major, what's the major impediment? Is it financial, technological, or lack of political will? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 uh, possibly all of that. I would say the most um, important thing is policy. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, the, this country, the world, I think most of the world has recognized this as a problem. Um, not er, all countries have, but um, this needs to be recognized as a serious personal, national, international problem, and there need to be policies that support the development, the application of technologies that we already have, for example, renewable energy, but also realize that that's probably going to be inadequate and that uh, we need to start looking for new uh, management tech technologies that can help us address this. And I think if we fail to do that, we're in very serious trouble. We may be in serious trouble anyway, 
there may be not enough new ideas and new technologies to solve this problem. But we're never going to know that unless we really try. And that starts with policies that really support and advocate for that kind of search and that kind of research and development. Policies that are binding, because as we know, the, with the, some of these other, uh, like the Paris Agreement, there, there are no teeth in it. So mm -hmm. it's easy to make these promises. All right, who has a? <laughs> Wait, we got one here and then back there. Thank you very much. It was a, a great multifaceted uh, overview of the problems and some of the solutions. But except for one brief reference at the end of it, it didn't talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, population. Uh, if the Industrial Revolution is this, the benchmark of the start of this, this uh, rapid change, when the population was only 1 billion, 150 years later it's 7.5 billion, half of that in yours and my lifetime, uh, that Keeling curve looks pretty puny next to the population hockey stick. I think there ought to be a little more op, uh, emphasis earlier on in the talk about the, the, the population, because if we cut pollution in half and we double the population, we haven't solved the problem. I agree. Uh, it's certainly, um, uh, reproduction needs to be part of the discussion here, an important part of the discussion. And as I showed in that one graph, how frequently it appeared in, in textbooks and literature, it was zero. Uh, that's not very realistic. Uh, it definitely uh, needs to be discussed and, and needs to be uh, recognized and acted upon. Um, your lecture was absolutely quite informative, and I want to thank you. And I had three things I wanted to mention. You mentioned about marine life um, um, migrating. If something's not done, so is there a specific marine life that we need to be concerned about? And the other thing I'm wondering about has to do with hurricanes and the effect that hurricanes are having on the ocean, mm -hmm. and um, also China no longer is taking plastic, so what's the backup plan the U.S. has? Because more than likely, the, the level of pollution is going to increase. Thank you. Well, there's, there's, you've hit a lot of important issues there. Um, plastics. Um, we keep putting it in the ocean. We need to be very careful. We need to be much more careful about doing that. And we uh, it's uh, a real problem because the plastic obviously is very long-lived. It break, ultimately breaks down into small particles and gets into the food web. And we don't yet know what the full consequences of that are going to be. Uh, certainly what we've seen so far is very negative. Um, the other part of your question was about migrations. Well, on the plastic, uh -huh. what's the backup plan? Are you aware that the US has since China is no longer taking our plastic? We're looking at hundreds and thousands of tons of plastic now we have here. So mm -hmm. do you know, have you heard of anything? There's well, any certainly we can recycle at least some of it. We, we, the, a lot of it could be recycled. 
Now that is, it can be energy intensive, so we have to think about how we recycle it. If you can re use renewable energy to do that, that's great. If you're using fossil energy, then it's not so great. Uh, maybe there could be a, a greater push for biodegradable plastics. It doesn't have to be long-lived plastics. There's, I don't know the te technology, but I know that there are biodegradable plastics and companies that are working on that, that would seem to be uh, one way to go here, is to transition to less long-lived, you know, shorter-lived plastics that would break down and wouldn't stay out in the ocean for hundreds of years. So that in regards to hurricanes, what effect is this massive hurricane we have having on ocean life? Yeah, well, it's, it's no doubt. Anything we can do to yeah. keep it from being so yeah. catastrophic? Yeah. Well, um, it's a little outside my area. I'm sure my fellow marine biologists are looking at the aftermath of these hurricanes. I don't know what, what exactly they're finding, but you can imagine it's quite devastating, uh, going to be quite devastating to, to marine life there. Now, it will recover more or less, but uh, to be honest, I don't know. I'm not familiar with the details of those studies, but certainly it is very concerning. And we're tying it back into CO2 and warming. As the oceans warm, the intensity of these hurricanes are going to get much stronger. So we can expect much stronger hurricanes and therefore more impact to marine life as well as humans. And I think particularly marine life in, in nearshore areas. So. Uh, coral reefs, mangroves, wetlands, those are the ones that the hurricanes take the greatest toll on because not so much on midwater and, and deep water. Who has the next question or comment? You're very quiet, Holly. Well, it's, it's not directly on uh, Dr. Rao's talk. It's more of, um, since there's so many young people in the room, I wanted to... Um, I'm a researcher at UCLA, um, the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. And uh, one of the topics I've occasionally taught is population and development. So I just wanted to point out that, um, you know, a lot of the billions of people in the world scarcely have any carbon footprint, right? Because they don't have access to fossil fuel energy. And so it's really... Um, an issue about overconsumption by a small percentage of the global population that needs to be addressed. And we know that also when, when people have a, a good standard of living um, and women have access to reproductive care and freedom to make choices about their family size, you really do get uh, decreases in um, how many children they have. So that's why, you know, Europe and Japan, they're, um, fertility is below the replacement rate. They're going to have a hard time maintaining some of their social systems because they don't have enough children in, in the way of looking at it. So the, the number one thing you can do with population is really give women access to care. Um, yeah, education, yeah. So, <laughs> thanks. And, and that has been proven very conclusively in Latin America, but there is a study recently that showed that 50% of the girls in the world under the age of 10 today live in countries with severe gender inequity. So they don't have the opportunity to go to school, and women, as young girls and women, don't have the opportunity for careers. The replacement uh, 
rate 2.1 children per couple, and the 0.1 is because there is some infant mortality. But if you look at places in Africa, the, even though the, the, the reproductive rate has gone down, it's still above five children per couple. So we've got a lot of work to do, and if you look ahead, what climate change is going to do to agricultural productivity, the places with the greatest, highest birth rate are the places that will lose the most food productivity because of climate change, primarily throughout much of Africa. So we've got lots of problems for you young people to deal with. You, yeah, you can, you can thank some of us for giving you a wonderful set of opportunities. Who has the next question or comment? Okay, I got one back here. Yeah, I just want to comment. I think that probably by your <clears throat> slides there, one of the most effective ways of physically removing CO2 at a very economic level is not burning up the rainforest. Plants naturally absorb CO2. We all know that they put oxygen back into the atmosphere. It's non-technical, doesn't cost anything, and you don't put smoke and all that stuff into the atmosphere and CO2 from burning wood to clear the forest. So if there's some way that we can encourage indigenous peoples in South America, Africa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, land clearing on a wholesale level um, to mitigate that uh, destruction of the rainforest, I think that uh, that would help mm -hmm. quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly a better land management is going to lead to a healthier ocean. So there's a lot of things that we do on land that uh, impact CO2 emissions that ultimately impact the ocean. My, my focus here was mostly on potential marine-based solutions, but I certainly agree there's a lot that, that could be done on land to preserve carbon sinks that are there and also to potentially enhance them so that they're drawing out even more CO2 than they currently it's not are. It's technical. It doesn't mm. involve Right. 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 The argument there... Right. The argument there is that uh, we're already uh, committed. We already need X amount of land to grow our food and fiber and provide housing. And the concern there is that how much are we willing to give up to, of that to have dedicated carbon sinks on land? Uh, certainly there's some capacity there, but you get into conflicts there with, with other uses, and that's, that's always a concern with that. But it can contribute to solving the problem. Yeah. It can't solve it, but it can contribute. Yeah, it can be And a if you look at, on an aerial basis, what ecosystems have the greatest ability to remove and store CO2, they are mangrove forests and wetlands. And we've destroyed most of our mangroves throughout the world, and here in Southern California, we've destroyed 95% of our wetlands. So as we go forward, there's great opportunities, especially with sea level rise, to try to, re to create new mangrove forests and new wetlands. Other question or comment? We got one over, one there and then one over here. Dr. Rao, are there data available yet from the Orbiting Carbon Observatory that shows the major sources and sinks of 
CO2 in the, in, around the world? Uh, what was the first part of that question? What, what? Are there data available from the orbiting carbon observatory oh, that show the major sources and sinks? Yeah, I would say no doubt. I don't know that, that data and technology, but there are, I understand that there are satellites that are um, able to sense CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, spatially around the Earth, and to do that you know, over multiple years would be very, it could be used uh, to understand sources and sinks of carbon in a much finer detail than what we, what we now know. But I must say I don't know the details of that. We're going to take one more. All right, so um, in your presentation, you talked about like substitutions for fossil fuels, which include like uh, using like ocean waves or like solar panels um, and things like this. But won't some of these inventions like um, harm some of like the ecosystem mm -hmm. or like the animals like in these sort of environments? Yeah, obviously uh, to do any, any of this stuff, you have to understand what the environmental consequences are and you have to weigh those against what the benefits are. There's definitely a cost benefit to any of these actions that I've talked about. And a lot of them, we, at least some of the ones I work on, those are not very well known. Uh, some of the renewable energy area, those are better known because they've been practiced for a longer time. But certainly uh, in anything we do here, there's, there's always a potential or, or an actual potential or, or real uh, impacts that can occur. And uh, again, uh, decision makers, you and I and everybody else are gonna have to decide do we want less CO2 or, um, and weigh that against um, you know, some localized impacts to the environment? And it's very likely that we're not going to be able to, to avoid all these impacts, and we're going to have to make some decisions and trade-offs as to how to actually proceed here. So you're right. Uh, these trade-offs have to be understood, and we need to, to evaluate those in making our decisions. We have one more. OK. Um, so, so why do some smaller nations have larger? Hold, hold the microphone close to your mouth. Oh, sorry. Um, so, why do some smaller nations have larger per capita emission es estimates more than like industrialized nations like the U.S.? Why do we have more <clears throat> more emissions uh, than other countries that yeah. have more people. Well, we have a higher standard of living. We're more dependent on fossil energy per capita than, than many. So uh, yeah, there's quite a variation, obviously, in the carbon footprint of different countries and the peoples with, you know, per capita within those countries. So th that does vary uh, significantly. So we in the US have the highest per cap of emissions, so per person. China, as a country, has the greatest amount of emissions because they have a much larger population, but their per caps are lower than in the United States. Thank you. And of course, the challenge is everybody wants to have our high standard of living, but if that were to happen, using fossil energy, it would be untenable. So we've got to figure out a way of allowing people to improve and have a higher standard of living, but doing so without, with a much lower carbon footprint. That's the, that's the challenge here. Well, I want to thank you all for coming, and Greg, thank you for a very illuminating lecture. <laughs> gave us lots to think about.
Spirit.